ACRM is 100 years old this year. Join us in Atlanta this October for our 100th anniversary annual conference. The largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation research conference in the world will feature hundreds of instructional courses, symposia and papers and posters, and an expo hall with over 100 exhibitors and sponsors. Go to acram.org register. Welcome to RehabCast, the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Archives of Art. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. Today on the podcast, I have the honor of meeting with the most recent ACRM Launchpad winner who shares about her ingenious device that helps individuals unlock abilities in paretic limbs. My discussion with this female inventor, CEO, and company founder was extra special because it was held on the 2023 International Women's Day. In the second part of this podcast, gender slash assigned sex is a key part of my discussion with the author who investigated sex-related discrepancies in the access to optimal care and outcomes after traumatic spinal cord injury. Without further ado, here's our first guest. Welcome to the Rehab Cast. I'm going to allow our first guest to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Liana Genovese. I am the CEO and founder of Imaginable Solutions, and I'm also the inventor of our international award-winning product, Guided Hands. My background is in biomedical and mechanical engineering, and I am based out of Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. Awesome. Thanks for being here. And I look forward to hearing about this device and how you won the Launchpad winner at the ACRM conference recently. Before we get into what the actual device is, it'd be great for us to hear what were the things that led up to founding the company, creating this device, and kind of talk us through that process. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll just give a little bit of context to our product. So our product is called Guided Hands. It's an assistive device that enables people with limited hand mobility to write, paint, draw, and access technology. I was actually inspired to create the first prototype of Guided Hands for a friend of mine who has dystonia. She mentioned to me that she had severe spasticity in her hands, so she had troubles with doing the buttons on her shirt, using cooking utensils, writing utensils. But the one thing that really stood out to me was that she loved to paint. But as her condition progressed, she wasn't even able to hold on to a paintbrush. So as part of my engineering school project, I created her a painting assistive device and I incorporated her throughout the entire design process. The first prototype was made out of pipe cleaners, straws, and a sponge. And I ended up creating her something that gave her back her passion for painting. So I started testing guided hands with individuals with multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injuries, strokes, traumatic brain injuries, MS. It was just a passion project of mine that I just wanted to see through and and see how many people I could help. So that's, I guess, a little bit of the origin story behind why I, I created the product. That's great. And can you talk about kind of going through that process of, you mentioned working with multiple different disciplines, but for people that have similar ideas, when you think about turning this into a thing that patients can actually get, talk about that process and how that's gone and some of the things you've learned along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So as I was testing Guided Hands with many different people, and this product, it's, it's human-centered, it's an assistive device, it's for people with disabilities. So we made it 
very clear to our team that we wanted to make sure that patients and individuals with disabilities were involved throughout the entire design process. So the reason why we created our company and Magical Solutions was when I met a little girl with cerebral palsy at our local children's hospital and I brought guided hands to her so that she could test it out. And she immediately started painting with guided hands and she used a pen to write, played a game on her iPhone, and she turned to her mom and said, mom, I want one. And then the mom turned to me and asked, how much is it? And at that point, the thought of selling this had never crossed my mind. Again, this was just a passion project of mine. I just wanted to use my biomedical engineering skills for good. And a week later, I incorporated my company Imaginable Solutions and knew that this was exactly what I wanted to do. Fast forward three years later, we've been operating the company and we've been able to sell guided hands across Canada, the US, Singapore, Australia, the UK, Netherlands, to hospitals, rehabilitation centers, schools, and other organizations serving people with disabilities. That is so cool to hear. Talk about that process of submitting it to the ACRM for the Launchpad project competition and kind of how that's gone. And what's that process been like for you? Yeah, it was amazing to be presenting at the ACRM Launchpad competition. I was there as a pitch finalist, but I was also there in collaboration with one of our customers in Iowa. They're called On With Life. They serve people with brain injuries. And they actually asked me to come down and co-do a presentation with them on how you can utilize 3D printing technology to improve quality of life for people with disabilities. So I initially joined their team to do this symposium talk. And then later I found out that ACRM was also hosting the Launchpad competition. So I thought, you know what? I'm already going to be down there, so I might as well apply. And I'm so happy that I did. It was just such a fantastic experience to connect with other rehab professionals and physicians in the space and just create more awareness for guided hands. So it was an amazing opportunity. You've told us some great stories about utilizing it. And I'm curious if you could kind of describe what the device actually looks like and how it helps people with neurologic injury or different levels of spasticity actually accomplish some of these tasks that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So pictures and videos definitely do speak a thousand words, but I will definitely do my best to explain it on the podcast. So guided hands is purely mechanical and it utilizes a sliding system that promotes guided hand movements as a user holds a hand piece tailored to their level of hand impairment. So we recognize that it's not one size fits all. There's people of different ages, hand sizes, levels of mobility, just like what you mentioned, people have tone, people have spasticity, some people have weakness. So we have hand pieces that accommodate for different levels of hand mobility. And that hand piece then connects to an arm that holds the individual's writing utensils. So that can hold a pen, a pencil, a stylus, a marker, whatever you want. And it really eliminates the individual who has mobility challenges in their hand, eliminates the need to use their hand and actually promotes using the gross motor skills in the shoulder rather than the fine motor skills in the hand. So it really does help improve range of motion, promoting a lot of hand-eye coordination, developing sensory motor skills. So we're actually working with a couple organizations investigating guided hands as a rehab tool for individuals with spinal cord injuries and strokes and really understanding the therapeutic benefits of incorporating this tool in a person rehabilitative journey. Exactly. And I think what's cool about it is, especially when you look at 
the other things that are out there is that, like you said, it takes the focus off of the actual grip of the stylus or the thing that they're working with and really gives them the freedom to use that paintbrush or pen or whatever to create. And it takes that burden of grip off of the mind of the person that's trying to use that device. And some of the things that, you know, you've shared or was in the presentation that people were able to accomplish is just really, really cool things. Do you have any great stories of the ones that really pull on your heartstrings of people that have used this in ways that you wouldn't have predicted or different projects or things that you were like, oh, I, you know, I hadn't thought of that, but that's really cool. Yeah, definitely a few different ways. We're always connecting with occupational therapists. They are the best person to collaborate with to ensure that our design meets the abilities of a wide range of individuals. So we always co-create with our occupational therapists and health professionals and different organizations. And they are fantastic at thinking of different ways of adapting the device to meet the needs of their clients. We actually had an occupational therapist who used guided hands as an arm sliding device for a child with autism. So they still had a little bit of mobility in their fingers, but the main issue was that the parents were doing a lot of hand over hand or really holding up the wrist uh, because they couldn't hold their own wrist up. So they wanted to use guided hands to kind of transition away from the hand over hand so that the individual can be more independent. And that's really the purpose behind guided hands is to really improve quality of life, promoting communication, sensory motor skills, and really independence, which is huge for, for so many people. So we saw an occupational therapist adapt it for that population, which was, you know, we didn't think that guided hands could help that population. So it was wonderful to see we made an impact for that one child. We're always connecting with occupational therapists to ensure our design can help as many people as we can. But one of my favorite moments, and I guess I have to get permission if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, <laughs> maybe you'll have to edit it out, but, um, but I'll try to share in the story. So one of my favorite moments by far of testing guided hands with individuals with disabilities and really working side by side with them to hear their needs and to see how we can help them. So I introduced guided hands to a boy named Jeff and he lives with cerebral palsy and he's nonverbal. So he was using guided hands to access an iPad and he was playing a game called Wordscapes where you connect the letters to form a word. So he was super smart. He was spelling sit, S-I-T, hit, H-I-T, and then he spells S-H-I-T, shit. And that was my favorite moment because it's so sad that, you know, some individuals look right past people with disabilities. God enhanced in him using the iPad and playing that game, it not only gave him a voice, it enabled him to communicate with us, but it also showed that he had a sense of humor, which was really nice. And he was able to express himself. Um, his mother wasn't too happy, but um, it was it was a really <laughs> fun moment. So, so moments like those, and again, working side by side with people that we serve is definitely something that I love doing. I'm kind of that rogue engineer that just wants to talk to people and wants to, you know, just socialize and really be involved in what we're doing and involved with the people because that's where my passion and my heart lies. And I think a lot of the people on my team, we share that same passion. So it's been awesome leading our company and Magical Solutions towards helping these individuals in the best way that we can. Awesome. 
And uh, I'm curious, and you can opt not to answer this question, but what are the things you're working on now that you're able to share? Or can we look forward to any new submissions to the next Launchpad competition? And I'm curious to kind of help unlock, like, what has this opened up for you to think about as the next steps and things? Right now, we are just working on finalizing some of the new feedback that we've been receiving from occupational therapists. I think the main thing that we received as feedback was we wanted to enhance our design so it can help individuals with more tone. So people have more spasticity, people have a little bit more force when using guided hands. So currently right now we are just making some design changes, testing with individuals, and we're going to be making our next 250 units. And we're going to be launching that in a couple months. But I guess to answer your question, we see guided hands as the first product of many. We think that disability innovation is so, so important. So we definitely want to stay in this space and collaborate with more occupational therapists and physicians because they work hand in hand with their clients and their patients, and they can see what their needs are and what problems they experience. So kind of having that trifecta of, you know, having an engineer, an occupational therapist or your health professional and the end user is so important. So we just want to create more things. But in terms of guided hands, we we are hoping to integrate stabilization technology into guided hands to help reduce the effects of hand tremors for people with Parkinson's or essential tremor. So that's definitely on the product roadmap for it. But in terms of a completely new submission to the launch pad, nothing right now. But I think as we connect with more occupational therapists and we hear more stories from the people that we serve will definitely start brainstorming what the next product or innovation should be. And then for the people listening and their interest in kind of seeing this device or seeing it in action, where can they go to see more information about it or contact you or your company about getting this type of product? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about our assistive device guided hands, you can visit us at www.imaginablesolutions.com. And, or if you just Google search guided hands, I'm pretty sure that we should pop up and you should see this uh, robotic looking device. We always offer uh, healthcare facilities, occupational therapist teams uh, in services, so demonstrations and trainings on guided hands. And we're always open to feedback and collaborations so that we can make sure that disability innovation is heard and that we're doing it more in this world. And uh, with guided hands, again, hopefully that's just one product of many that we will create to to serve our community. And I think that's so cool when we really think about kind of helping individuals move through this space where they have impairments and things and the stuff that we can do to help turn up the volume on the ability that they're able to demonstrate, I think helps us all. And I think that's great. If you have a few more minutes left, I've been asking guests on the podcast lightning round questions if you're up for it. Yeah. All right. So first question Tell me a piece of good advice you've received. Surround yourself with people who will lift you up. I think we could all definitely do more of that for sure. Second question. You're facing a really big decision and you need some help. Tell me who do you call or how do you approach trying to tackle that thing? 
kind of related to the first piece of advice of surrounding yourself with people who can lift you up. I definitely surround myself with a lot of mentors and advisors who are in the medical space who are smarter than me and they have so much experience. So if I have any questions or in a time of need, I'll definitely reach out to them and ask them. Sometimes it's a little bit tricky when you get conflicting arguments, but at the end of the day, it's really good to see in here different perspectives and then kind of sift through that, analyze that yourself and then make a decision. This one's a little bit less serious. You're at the ACRM conference and you find $40 you didn't realize you had in your suitcase. What do you do with it? Oh, absolutely buy food with it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Last one. What would you tell yourself 10 years ago if you could travel back in time? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I think I would tell little Liana to just find your passion stick really close to it and let that drive you forward in everything that you do. There's going to be a lot of bumps in the road, some challenges, some people that are going to say some nasty things, but it's just going to be super important to just focus on what you love, focus on helping others and just using that to to drive you forward in, in everything that you do. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And I think it's kind of awesome that it's on International Women's Day today. And we're speaking with a woman founder and a woman inventor and a woman entrepreneur all in one. Thank you for your time. And hopefully the listeners enjoy seeing the next fun stuff that you do and using this project to help people do more. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. If you found this conversation interesting and have an innovative rehabilitative technology device of your own, be sure to check out the annual Launchpad competition in the next ACRM conference. The Launchpad competition is really meant to highlight the work being developed by nonprofit research slash engineering labs and startup companies. Having said that, let's move into the second interview where I discuss the paper, Sex-Related Discrepancies in the Access to Optimal Care and Outcomes After Traumatic Spinal Cord Injury. Be sure to listen closely to the part when we discuss a particularly well-designed figure in this study. Let's welcome our next guest. Well, thanks so much for the invitation. It's very kind of you. I'm Julio Furlan, a neurologist who works in the field of neurorehabilitation and neuro-repair. I work at Lindhurst Center, which is a unit from Toronto Rehabilitation Institute at the University Health Network. As a scientist, I work at the Kite Research Institute, which is also part of the University Health Network. And I'm assistant professor at the Department of Medicine and Division of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation at the University of Toronto. Thanks for being here. And today, you're going to talk to us about your awesome paper in the ACRM journal called Sex-Related Discrepancies in the Access to Optimal Care and Outcomes After Traumatic Spinal Cord Injury, a retrospective cohort study using data from the Canadian Registry. So before we kind of jump into the actual topic area and your paper, talk to us a little about what were the things that led up to thinking of this research question, or what were the things going on that kind of led you down the path of getting this published? Well, that's a good question. I have a personal interest in, and my research program is focused on predictors of outcomes in spinal cord injury. And with that particularity, I do get involved in many studies on age and sex. And that led me to um, obtain the access to this uh, large database that has been registering many cases of uh, spinal cord injury throughout Canada since 2004. 
and involve 18 participating uh, acute care centers and uh, 13 participating rehabilitation centers across Canada again. With that vision, it um, was a great opportunity to actually explore the idea of if uh, sex uh, it would be a predictor of outcome in that population, with a caveat that it is registry, so it gives an opportunity to look at into a large database with a unifying factor of being in a socialized universal healthcare system. So that was a great opportunity to actually explore more one of the main predicts of outcome that I have been studying for several years now. That's very interesting. When you think about kind of moving from that idea into the actual building of the methods to look at this intervention. Talk to me about that process. Talk to me about how that method section and the whole structure of the paper moved through it. How did that go? Yeah, looking into the literature, there are at least two publications that I'm aware which involve large databases where other prior investigators analyze this research question about sex-related differences in the outcomes after spinal cord injury. So with that in mind, it would not be a productivity to just repeat some larger retrospective court study. And I thought, what could be different in that aspect? So again, looking to my interest of uh, predicts of outcome, another one that I'm very interested is age. And in in this context of sex-related differences, it's very important to actually look into different ages, since obviously we all know that the hormonal profiling woman changes over time. For that fact, then I just explored losing this larger database again, the three groups that I mentioned in my methodology, which means assuming it to be premenopausal woman. And then we have the perimenopausal woman, basically between 41 years of age and 50 years of age. And then any woman older than 50 years of age would be considered and in my research as postmenopausal. And uh, we're using the same uh, time frame for the time of a spinal cord injury or the age of the time of a spinal cord injury. I divided a population of um, males into the three groups too. So that led me to a new different research question, which is, is there actually a difference uh, in between males and females when we are looking into different age groups so or subgroups, as I mentioned in my paper? When you actually started to unbox the data and start to look at some things, what were the things that you found like frustrating or things that came up that you wouldn't have expected that made you rethink a little bit about what you were doing in that process? Or were there any hiccups along the way as you were building this out and starting to actually look at the information? Yeah, so that's a great question because we assume that a larger registry would have all the information, but in matter of fact, there is still quite a bit of missing data. And uh, some of the aspects that would be more valuable to analyze, such as pre-existing medical comorbidities, the data is not that high quality per se, that you have more refinement of the data. Even though most of the data points that we are interested in had most of the data completed, but this is something that we when you're looking into the data, we find out that maybe some of the aspects would be a limitation for the study per se. So that's one of the aspects that I found to be something to learn with uh, large databases. Other things even that were more strikingly difficult for me was to find the actual time frames to, co- to consider uh, individuals as females into, again, the three classes, premenopause, perimenopause, and postmenopause, since uh, the literature is not uh, consensual in terms of uh, their definition. So I tried to do a bit get the best of most of the opinions, but still I can say it is frustrating because we don't actually have the true information of these females that were included. 
about their menstrual cycle periods or status at the time of spinal cord injury. So that's another aspect that is a limitation. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure that was tricky to really try and find out when those cutoffs were going to be for yourself. Because yeah, I can imagine every different resource you look at might have it slightly a little bit different one way or the other. And then you ultimately have to decide what's it going to be for you. So let's move through into some of the results. You have a great table that's color-coded in the paper, and when you uh, pull it up on the ACRM and where you look at it in the print journal, it's really nice, and I like how the color codes kind of bring you into the different areas that are interesting and a little bit different based on the age groups. But I'm curious to get from your perspective, what were the things that kind of jumped out to you or give me the interesting little tidbits that you teased away when you actually ran the numbers and tried to see what are the differences between these different groups? Yeah, so that's another great question. And as a matter of fact, it was interesting to look into the three different subgroups comparing females and males when you look into the epidemiology, for example, which were not very surprising to us. In matter of fact, some of the aspects that we found, uh, some of the difference, such as, for example, just site one at the, at the code distribution having more females younger than 40 years old that were aboriginals compared to other groups that were more prevalent in the male population at the same age group. So that's something that we're surprised when they look at it, but it didn't interfere much with the results. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, I found a very important in this case is the fact that, yeah, taking all together, even though there are some differences in terms of uh, the demographics and uh, the epidemiological aspects of the traumatic spinal cord injury in these groups and also subgroups, is the fact that mostly there was not much of the impact on the degree of impairment and degree of disability in this group of individuals when they look at the longer term, as long as we can get, which is at the time of discharge from the rehabilitation center. So I think the most important is actually seeing that they had some important differences in terms of, again, demographics and epidemiology, but in matter of fact, the impact on the outcomes that were the most interesting ones for us were not really significant enough to highlight uh, anything that would be important for clinical products or even research in the future. Yeah, it's almost the things that aren't significant that are just as interesting as the things that are significant in this paper. I like how you got into that in the discussion as well, kind of unboxing those things that you might have predicted would be a little bit different. But then when it actually shakes out, when you look through all the information, they're not all that different. Yeah, exactly. There are some aspects that I would highlight, as you mentioned, the color code at the table, which was actually very difficult to come to this idea since we had an overwhelming amount of data to summarize and make it very, in the simplest way that you can for readers to appreciate and understand what you found. But there are some aspects that are very really interesting in my, in my point of view, too, is the fact, for example, spasticity is less frequent in the older population that it is females compared to males, which is something that you need to replicate and uh, find a little bit more refinement to what it is and if it is really true in the general sense that we would see in the practicing. But it, it is very interesting when you get all this data, you know, statistical analysis by professionals, which are by statisticians and coming with the results and you need to now interpret them and make sense to ourselves, but also for clinicians to understand. Yeah, it's walking that line of, oh, that's interesting. But is this applicable? And can I take something from this? And does it make sense? And yeah, I think it's a great job at, at kind of walking someone through that path and pulling all these pieces together. Great job. So now that you've thought about this, and you've kind of put these pieces together, and there was the interesting parts that were similar or different, what 
in your mind, what are the next steps that, you know, not giving away trade secrets or next publications or anything, but what are, what are the things that your mind is going to, to look at next or would be interesting to add on to this when you're looking at going forward, whether it's the medical comorbidities that weren't easily collected or what are those next pieces you would think would be really interesting to add? We're in the process now of finalizing our data analysis using the same data with a different methodology. We are doing propensity score matching for the four different aspects of the individuals. And we're trying to analyze now if we can come up with the same conclusions that we came with the overall volume of data that you got all cohorts together. So that's the first step that we are on the way now. But I think eventually, with all the literature that we have, we're going to come in with the catalog where we need to actually invest money in doing a prospective study that we can compare them, have a more data in terms of um, things like uh, you just mentioned, pre-existing medical competence, which, in my opinion, are very important as a predictor of outcome in spinal cord injury, but also to analyze data that you can have a real data on the status of the menstrual cycle and the menstrual um, status from, from women, and even, even to look at into androgen status for men and see how that affects, because the literature based on preclinical and clinical study right now is still conflicting in terms of the results, and we don't actually have a quite aware truth of the facts. So we still need some more data, and I think with all that I have studied and seen, I think it will now come to a point when a prospective court study probably be the best way to analyze this data and get your answers to the questions that remain as knowledge gaps in my paper. Absolutely. I think the other takeaway that I have from this is really thinking about like all rehab physicians and providers are kind of called to do is treating the whole person, not just the disease process. This is just another example of that. It's not just a spinal cord injury patient. There's all of these other layers that go along with that, whether it's gender point in the menstrual cycle, postmenopausal, perimenopausal, all of that likely impacts bone health and metabolism and all of those other things and really trying to pull that into caring for that one person that you're working with and you've built that relationship with. And I think this is an extension of that. And thanks for putting this out there into the world. No, thank you very much. And that was a great observation because, in matter of fact, as we are clinicians, we look after patients as individuals, as you mentioned, and uh, all these data makes any sense if you apply them to the particular individual that you are seeing. And then we make sense also when we are studying in the future research projects that we consider some of the differences, but also the similarities that we can increase it, how generalized can be the results of any study in the future when you consider selection based on the age. And as in this study's focus is sex. One piece that you are missing here, obviously, is gender perceived because we don't actually have this information and probably would be very essential in the next studies that we, we may uh, start in the future is considering now all these new stories that we are building in terms of uh, gender and how can influence outcomes since we have now new figures like uh, the transgender individuals, which have a very different profile comparatively to international males and females, if, if you may say in the fact that we we don't know how that interferes with outcomes, for example, and what else you can improve in terms of rehabilitation for these individuals to get the best of and optimal results uh, and recovery. Well, thanks for being here. And if you're up for it, can we transition over to the lightning round questions? Oh, yes, please. First question is, tell me a piece of good advice that you've received. 
I think the best advice that I received is always perseverate and perseverate for the truth. So if you don't have the data, it's better not publishing if you don't have a good data in terms of research. But if you do have, a, try to analyze at your best and be very frank with the results and trying to interpret it as best as you can. But the result, it is what it is. Exactly. Great advice. Great advice. Next question. You're facing a really big decision and you need some help. Tell me who you would call or what you would do to try and help get to that answer and figure out what that next step is going to be. So professionally, I, I have good mentors. So I would actually rely on my mentors to ask uh, for their opinion and their suggestions. They are really uh, typically great. So for that matter, for professional advice, I would link with my, again, my mentors. And I think that would be uh, the way for me to solve uh, the main problems when I'm in debating myself uh, where I should go. Yeah, I feel like the mentors you have are, are great options and inevitably they they tell you the advice along the lines of, you already know what you're going to do. Like, why are you talking with me about it? So yeah, I think that's great. That's great advice for sure. You're at the ACRM conference and you happen to find $40 in your suitcase you didn't know was there. What do you do with it? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, typically when I go to meetings, I don't go for a, a, anything fun, but probably I'm going to go for a nice dinner and invite somebody that I met in the meeting and just have some conversation. It would be probably a good time for a network. Now, this one's a little bit retrospective, uh, which I think fits well given the nature of your paper. But what would you tell yourself at age 22 if you could travel back in time? If you remember 22 years, when I was 22 uh, it was just coming in the middle of medical school, so I was living in Brazil, and probably what I'd say, you know, it's time to start to research earlier than I started later. So I really have a passion for research, and besides the fact that I have a passion to practice medicine and neurology, but I think I would have actually started my career a little bit earlier in the scientific world. Thank you for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck on future endeavors. Well, I really appreciate it again. It was uh, my pleasure to be with you and uh, talking about a paper that yeah, was exciting for me and uh, hopefully it's going to be exciting for other people. We appreciate you joining us today on the ACRM Rehabcast. Be the first to check out our next episode and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. For more on the guided hands device, be sure to go to imaginablesolutions.com and for more great publications, check out the acclaimed Scientific Journal of the ACRM, which boasts a 2021 impact factor of 4.060 according to the journal citation report. I'm Dr. Bill Niehaus. Follow me on Twitter at NHAUSMD. Special thanks to Philip Frobos who edited and produced this episode. Without Philip, the rehab cast would just not work. Because of his skill, the listener is no longer subject to the actual number of times I reflexively say awesome during a guest interview. And now the standard closing promotional material. Come celebrate ACRM's 100th International Rehabilitation Conference in Atlanta later this year. The core ACRM 2023 conference will be running from October 30th to November 2nd. It's never too late to register. If somehow you don't manage to make it this year, definitely follow along on social media. We'll be using the hashtag ACRM2023.